the continuing resolution to keep the government's lights on next week, it's hitting some last-minute political hurdles related to, of all things, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. For details on this and other critical matters in Congress, WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And I guess they've promised, no, there will not be a shutdown, but there's still always a little bumps at the end of the road here. Right, exactly. Every time that lawmakers are sure that everything's going to work out and it'll be fine several weeks out, you know something's going to pop up. And who would have thought it would be permitting on energy projects this time around? Although many may have thought that since Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is in the thick of everything around the Senate, that it might involve him. And sure enough, it does. So, We'll take a look at this stepping back for just a moment. Joe Manchin, several months ago, it seems like, made a deal with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, essentially a side deal that would allow for his bill, which allows fast tracking of energy projects, including a pipeline in West Virginia, to move forward in this legislation. And everything was kind of under the radar for a while, and then other lawmakers started getting wind of this. And before you knew it, there was a lot of opposition, not only only from Republicans, but now there have been some Democrats. I spoke with Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, and while he generally uh, supports most of the legislation and trying to expedite these permits, he really thinks it's unfair that a pipeline basically could be singled out by Congress and say, well, no matter what the court said and what the permitting process said, Congress is going to say that this is okay. So he is now against it, along with others like uh, Senator Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side, and then many Republicans are as well. And so if Senate Majority Leader Schumer, as he originally apparently promised Manchin that he would tack it on to the continuing resolution, that's just not going to fly at this point. The Republicans, there would have to be at least 10 more, actually more than 10 now, because Democrats oppose this, some of them, uh, to get this moved across. So at some point, Schumer is going to have to figure out, I am going to either cut part of this off from the overall short-term spending plan, or I'm going to make a deal with Senator Manchin to take it up separately later, but I just can't see how it would stay attached to this short-term spending plan since no one, even Tim Kaine says, a pipeline should not end up causing the government to shut down. Right. So it's kind of like that ad that was on TV many years ago. We were kidding you to Joe <laughs> right, Manchin. Huh? Right. Sorry about that. <laughs> so the pipe would be sacrificed to the CR and not the other way around. Most likely. I think, you know, there's obviously, as Senator Kane pointed out, there's lots of options that they can move through, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to stay attached to it. All right. And uh, well, thank you for that update. And we'll keep our <laughs> fingers crossed. But then there's a few other things going on. I wanted to ask you about the electronic health record. The Senate Appropriations Committee is getting from VA some signals that are not welcome. No, this was really a disappointing hearing, I think, for a lot of uh, senators because there's been so much attention in connection with uh, this electronic health record system with the VA, and they had Deputy uh, VA Secretary Donald Remy speaking before a Senate Appropriations Subcommittee, and he was pretty blunt and said he just doesn't think that it is anywhere near ready to be fully rolled out. He says it still needs major improvements. They have to test it. They want to go and see where else it can work right now. And this really upset, uh, I think, a lot of the lawmakers, among them uh, Senate uh, VA Committee Chairman John Tester, noting that they've spent 
billions of dollars literally on this contract so far, and he just doesn't feel that they've got any real return on their investment. So it sounds like they're going to continue to slowly try to roll this out. But uh, Remy actually said, even though it's scheduled to try to come on early next year, they may have to even push that back if they don't feel it's ready. This is a contract that was supposed to basically uh, overhaul the system for more than 170 VA medical centers nationwide. Right now, it's only been implemented in a handful of those. So another tough test here for this system. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent. And there is also the issue of home rule in D.C. from Eleanor Holmes Norton. If you like going 36 miles an hour on New York Avenue or turning right on red, Congress could be your best friend. (laughs) That's right. You know, as you well know, Congress can pretty much uh, take a look at anything that D.C. passes with its D.C. Council legislation. So this is a renewed effort by D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton to give D.C. a little bit more independence from Congress. Uh, Her proposal, which she touts is basically expanding home rule, the greatest expansion it would be in nearly 50 years since home rule actually came into play in 1973. Among the things it would do, it would allow D.C. to prosecute all crimes. Some people wonder, well, how can that be that they can't prosecute all crimes? It's because D.C. has this unique relationship with a U.S. attorney where some of the cases go back and forth depending on what the case is. And then it would also allow D.C. to provide clemency in cases where prosecutors feel that's necessary. And then I think really what the biggest thing is, is it would lift this review requirement that all D.C. legislation has. Uh, As you know, it has to be looked at uh, by members of Congress before it can be fully implemented. And that has really basically held the hands of D.C. over the years. Uh, This got through the uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee, goes to the House. Uh, It's another attempt, of course, uh, for D.C. legislation to get through. Often we see this with D.C. legislation. Of course, they passed the statehood legislation from D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton earlier. But as usual, the big uh, roadblock will be the Senate, and it just doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere there. Kind of makes you wonder if Archduke Franz Joseph had this much trouble with (laughs) Vienna, you know, in the 19th century. (laughs) All right. And union vote for members of congressional staff. This is really seems to be something that's gaining momentum, the idea of just a better life for congressional staffers through organizing. Right. I mean, we've heard for years, as you know, about grumbling from uh, various staffers who are often very underpaid, overworked. They put in huge long hours. And then, of course, the lawmakers, to the spoils they go, they get all the attention. And so this has been bubbling up for years now. And the fact that it's actually come to a really historic union vote. This happened in the office of Michigan Congressman Andy Levin. He's the son of Congressman Sander Levin and the nephew of Carl Levin, so a lot of family history there. They have a long history of uh, working with unions and labor in Michigan. So his office was really the first one, although others have the ability to do this. Theirs was the first one to actually hold this union vote this past week. And so it's really interesting to see what other offices will do. Now, there is a caveat here that uh, Andy Levin, this being politics in Congress, he was actually defeated in his primary, so he's only going to be in office through the end of the year. But it is a big event for people that have pushed on this labor side to see whether or not staffers could actually take a vote on like this because uh, they just haven't been able to do it for years and years. That's an interesting one because there's a lot of encouragement by the Biden administration to get more federal people in the executive branch under those federal unions. So it's kind of of a piece 
here, what's going on. Right. And finally, we can talk about beer. Uh, <laughs> Why not? The weekend is already behind us, but you went to a bipartisan brewery event at Nats Park. Yeah, so this was really interesting. This happened, uh, it started five years ago. It was started by Anheuser-Busch with some lawmakers. And over the last two years, they've required that a Democrat and a Republican come together and actually brew beers together. And it's a really a fascinating event. Uh, there were five pairs of lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats. I spoke at length with uh, Montana Senator John Tester, who actually is a farmer and knows a lot about growing what goes into beer. And he his bipartisan budget was South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds, and uh, they came up with a beer called 17 Finger Select. You may wonder about that name. Well, for those who know, John Tester had an accident when he was a kid and got his uh, hand caught in a meat grinder, and he lost three of his fingers. He has a very good sense of humor about the whole thing, so believe it or not, their beer actually won, and uh, so they both hold up their hands. 17 fingers, of course, Mike Rounds has 10 fingers, and then seven for uh, John Tester. But on the more serious side, I asked them and other lawmakers about this fact that there just is not any kind of real laid back time that members of both parties hang out together like they used to. And uh, to a person, whether Republican or Democrat, all of them really singing the praises of this event, saying this is a chance that they can actually start to talk to each other. Uh, Obviously, uh, Tester said, I love to talk about beer. And he said, my beer is so good, you always want more than one. But at any rate, they also all acknowledge that more events of this type need to happen if you're going to break through any of this gridlock. So maybe it is just a matter of literally sitting down and having a beer with someone. All right. Sudsy way to uh, go there in Congress. (laughs) Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.